Listener supported. WNYC Studios. I'm John Schaefer, and you're listening to the Artist Propulsion Lab, WQXR's program to support emerging and mid-career musicians. This week, we're turning the clock back to November 2021 with an interview between flutist Brandon Patrick George, a member of our inaugural APL class, and Darren Walker, president of the Ford Foundation. They discussed the work needed to reach meaningful diversity, equity, and inclusion, as well as the importance of leadership and representation. Enjoy. My name is Brandon Patrick George. I am a flutist and member of WQXR's Artist Propulsion Lab. Last summer, in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, I saw a lot of symphony orchestras, music conservatories, chamber music societies rushing to figure out how they could right centuries of wrongdoing and exclusion. And while I believe we need to have more people of color performing on our concert stages and have more compositions by people of color performed, I also think that we should talk about who are making these decisions, who are working behind the scenes. And I thought that this would be a great opportunity to ask Darren Walker, president of the Ford Foundation, about his experience working with organizations and things that we can do in the classical music world. As a young flutist coming from a mid-sized city, Dayton, Ohio, from a single-parent household, I felt like a lot of Darren's story resonated with me. I followed him and his work for, for a long time. For me, coming from that upbringing into spaces that weren't really designed for people like me, and now I am in this position of being asked about different things that can change, I thought it would just be a great opportunity to sit down with Darren and hear more about his story, the work he's done, and what we can do in the classical music world and learn from his experiences. So Darren, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Brandon, for this invitation. And I want to just commend you for the work that you're doing as an artist. It's so important that you be present and that your voice and your perspective be heard. Throughout history, we're seeing examples of artists who are using their platforms not only to perform beautifully, but to also have a social engagement. I think there is uh, an urgency of now that demands of people like you and me that we are mindful, that we stand on the shoulders of people who indeed gave their lives in some instances to make it possible for us to have the opportunity and the privilege that we have today. Thank you for that, Darren. Could you talk a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are now? Well, I'm very lucky. I'm lucky because I was born in 1959 in America. And as a poor Black boy in rural Louisiana and then Texas, in spite of the financial, economic, and indeed racial barriers that I faced, on another level, 
I lived in an America that believed in my human potential. And I always felt that my country was cheering me on. And that manifests first in a Head Start program. I was lucky enough to be in the first class of Head Start in the summer of 1965. That program really transformed my life and started me on my journey, my thirst and my love of reading and books and knowledge. And I also went to great public schools. I am proud to say, and I often do say, and I write in my official biography, that I am a product of the public education system in America. I have never attended a day of private education in my life, and I'm very proud of that. What worries me, however, is that many of the panels and places and spaces I'm invited into, I'm somewhat of a rarity in this regard in terms of my education. But I did um, find my way to New York like many ambitious people who believe that they're probably a little too quirky, (laughs) a little too different to find long-term happiness and success back home. And so for me, coming to New York, as I did in, in the summer of 1986 to join a Wall Street law firm, was the opening of a new chapter in my life. I thought I might be in New York for a period of time. And then, of course, like all of us, I came to New York and was intoxicated about over just about everything in this in this town. And and then, of course, I met my beloved David. And after that, the deal was sealed. I was a New Yorker for life. It's wonderful. I can relate to a lot of your story. As I said, I'm a product of public schools all the way from my Head Start program through my arts magnet school that sent me on my way to conservatory. And it was a really special thing because as I was growing up, like everyone was cheering me on. When I got to the arts magnet school, I had access to some of the best teachers in town who played in the symphony orchestra who cheered me on. And despite the fact that there were no people in the orchestra at the time in Dayton, who looked like me, my teachers all seemed to have thought at the time that it was possible for me. So I never at one point during my education, elementary school through high school felt that it wasn't going to be possible for me. As I went on, I began to feel something that you just referred to, Darren, as like a rarity, that I'm in this space, I am here with these musicians, but now I'm the only one. And I've watched the numbers of people who look like me who are doing classical music have have gone gone away. And I want to talk about barriers that prevent people who come from where I come from, from going further. One thing that was difficult for me was how expensive it was to pursue a classical music education at a high level. And that despite uh, receiving scholarships to attend conservatories, that there was still money that I needed for summer programs, for instruments, to travel to competitions, to take auditions. And those are barriers that I think we can't really address unless we talk about the larger issue here in access and resources. And I just wondered if you could talk a little bit about that, Darren. 
Well, first, I think the issue of being the only one is something you and I share as a life experience. And that is really about the expectations that the larger white population and some people of color have of us. I think we are conditioned by those expectations. I always had high expectations set for me and and that I needed to be accountable for. I also think that the gaze that many people of color and certainly African Americans feel can be debilitating. It can be paralyzing. It can absolutely leave one dejected. Now, most people have these experiences, so there is nothing new. I mean, we all have the uh, experience of the imposter syndrome, but what is different in our case is how we're made to feel. And the structural example that you gave is, I think, uh, profoundly important, and that is the financial equity that is missing in the African-American community, for example, is a reason why you and I didn't have family, friends we could count on to uh, give us the money that we might need to buy the equipment that was extra. We didn't have the friends and family, the grandparents, the aunts and uncles, the godparents, who middle-class whites, I'm not talking about wealthy people, I'm just saying regular middle-class families in this country are able to provide, and we don't have that. I was in a meeting recently with a group of people talking about how difficult it is to start small businesses, and what was missing uh, from that conversation was understanding that most small businesses, when you study them started with initial investment of what they call friends and family. Friends and family gave Mark Zuckerberg the money to start Facebook. Friends and family gave Bill Gates the money to start what became Microsoft. Our community was never allowed to build wealth, to accumulate and accrete assets over generations. And therefore, today, we, depending on where we live in this country, our household net worth can be, in the case of Boston, I recently learned the the household net worth of the average African-American family was $1,000. And the average net worth of a white family in Boston was over $200,000. And so that's why it's so hard and why we see the attrition levels higher in part for this reason. Yeah. In classical music, we've seen in the past decade a rise to address this inequity. Orchestras have created training programs for people of color. And I've heard from some people pushback. You know, we support diversity. We want to see uh, more people of color on stage, but isn't this a bit of reverse discrimination if we have a program that's designed specifically just for people of color? If, in fact, all people, 
no matter black, brown, white, where you come from, might experience financial hardships and difficulties? Is it reverse discrimination to create programs that, in fact, are to support people of color uh, on their way? Darren, how would you respond to that? Well, first, I reject that idea categorically. I believe the idea of reverse discrimination is rooted in a desire to maintain the unfair advantage and privilege that has accreted over generations to some Americans. And when I hear reverse discrimination, I am reminded that many of those people making that argument are less interested in actually bringing about more diverse and inclusive society than maintaining the status quo. And I don't think it's fair to create a kind of moral equivalent between an effort to address systemic, structural, historic racism That's not a political statement. That's not conjecture. That's not anecdote. That's fact. That you would equate an effort to address that with some kind of intent to discriminate. That you would create a moral equivalency between that historic racism and a desire by a society to commit itself to addressing the harms that have been done. There is no moral equivalency in my mind, and therefore the idea of using as a foundational term discrimination, reverse discrimination, is on its face just pernicious, and and it logically doesn't make sense. Darren, you know, you're president of the Ford Foundation, and I want to know more about how you've put your ideals um, into action, not only on your own, but how do you select people to be on a board? Because in the classical music world, more often than not, it's not actually the artist, uh, the performers who are making the decisions right? A lot of times it's people we would probably refer to as as gatekeepers, right? So I'm curious, how do we go about selecting a team that can really help us put these things into action? Well, I think it's a challenge in the classical arts, this question of boards. First, boards have many responsibilities, But a primary responsibility is fundraising, which, for the reasons we just discussed, will exclude most people of color. That's not to say that there are not African Americans who are able to give. It's just that when you survey those African Americans, the demands on their capital is so much greater than it is for white philanthropists and donors. I think the 
issue of gatekeeping is real. And whether we like it or not, boards do play a role in gatekeeping. Critics, funders like the Ford Foundation and the Mellon Foundation and others have gatekeeping roles. But I also think that we have to address the issue of leadership of our organizations because it's that leadership who is responsible for having the vision to help boards see the possibilities when they can't always see. And I'm reminded of this because I was very involved with the Metropolitan Opera's commissioning of Terence Blanchard's opera on Charles Blow's book, Fire Shot Up in My Bones. And there was a time when recently, indeed, three or four years ago, when the idea of a Black composer being commissioned um, by the Metropolitan Opera still uh, did not seem within the realm of urgent possibility. And I certainly have been an advocate for this. Now, what gave it the urgency, tragically, were the murders of 2020, notably the murder of George Floyd. And that created an opportunity from this tragedy. What is going to be necessary, I believe, for the classical arts to continue to be relevant and successful in America? The canon is going to have to be transformed to embrace works like Terrence Blanchard's and others, not just one, and really opening the doors to the creativity that has always existed in this community, but that has not been allowed in the doors. Because diversity does equate with excellence. Because people want to see beauty, and they want to see themselves represented on the stage. Those Black parents who bring their boys and girls and say to their young daughter, you can be Misty Copeland. You can be Brandon Patrick. Look at him on the stage. And that's powerful. I think what you are frustrated by, though, is how patrons can exceptionalize and fetishize the one and only and mistake tokenism for diversity. I, too, have been in places and spaces where I'm the only one and others in the room call that diversity. We have to call that out for what it is, tokenism, because there is far more talent than just one of us. You just need to open your eyes, and especially those gatekeepers, holding the mirror up to them and asking them, what are you doing to ensure that I'm not the only one? So that the burden of educating and elevating these issues so that our wider audience can understand them does not rest solely on my shoulders and that we all have a responsibility and an accountability in our democracy to ensure that there is true opportunity in a country where we know that talent is spread evenly across America. It's opportunity that is not. 
And so our work, your work and my work, is to ensure that across this country, in places far and wide, that opportunity is there and that people like you and me have the chance to have their dreams come true as yours and mine have. Beautifully said. Thank you so much for that, Darren. It's been such an honor to be able to sit with you and and to talk with you about these things that are so, so important to me. I just want to thank you for not only taking the time and share your wisdom, but for being an inspiration to me on my journey as a musician to help find ways to continue to empower people who come from where I come from. And I just want to thank you for all the great work that you're doing. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Brandon. Flutist Brandon Patrick George, member of our inaugural Artist Propulsion Lab class, in conversation with Darren Walker, president of the Ford Foundation. Next time, flute player Emmy Ferguson combines her love of music and her interest in public health in the first episode of a four-part series about composers who lived with syphilis. This episode was produced by Brandon Patrick George, Max Fine, and Crystal Hawes. Our editor is Matt Frassica, and additional production assistance came from Hanako Yamaguchi and Jade Jiang. I'm John Schaefer. Thanks for listening. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, the New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for the New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.